morning, good afternoon, good evening, my dear friends, fans, colleagues, no matter where you are and when you're listening, welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And just a quick shout out uh, to the great group out of Las Vegas called Zingaya. Uh, That music you were listening to is from their single called uh, Nomad's Land. Uh, It's one of my favorites. I always get this vision in my mind's eye that I'm on the back of a camel loping across the sand dunes and I have some beautiful scarf wrapped around my head that's blowing in the wind. Uh, Yeah, it just uh, totally transports me. So uh, if uh, you are a newcomer to the show, I am Karen Tate, uh, your host here for uh, the last uh, decade or so, and uh, my guests and I discuss uh, just about everything, even the stuff uh, your mom told you to never discuss in public or the dinner table. Uh, I say fear not, taste the forbidden fruit. (laughs) And uh, today um, I am happy to be talking to uh, Daniel Drazen. Uh, He is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and has been a photographer and media producer for more than six decades uh, since the 90s um, as featured in his documentaries Calling Earth and Skoll, the afterlife experiment. Uh, Daniel's been actively investigating the field of afterlife communication through both traditional mental and physical mediumship as well as modern electronics. (laughs) And um, I think this is going to be a great show, especially with uh, all of these paranormal shows we all see on TV. We'll see where he weighs in. So, Daniel, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine as we discuss your new book, A New Science of the Afterlife. Thank you very much, Karen. It's a pleasure to be with you. And first, just want to apologize. I'm getting over a bit of a cold. So if I sound a bit hoarse, I hope you'll forgive me. Of course, of course. We're glad to have you. We missed you a few months ago, and uh, we're glad you're back now, and we were able to get you back in on the show calendar. So... um, you know, let's just start at the beginning. Uh, when and why did you become interested in afterlife research? Is there a personal story there? Well, <clears throat> partly, but um, I have to say I've been uh, intrigued uh, pretty much all my life with um, things that aren't supposed to happen. For example, uh, as a child, I experienced uh, quite a few precognitive dreams. And... Um, <clears throat> I, I didn't quite understand what was going on there, but it was enough to um, to teach me the fact that, let's say, in the theater of life, stuff goes on backstage. There, there are okay. aspects to to uh, what we call reality that we're not normally you know privy to um, through our five senses, for example, uh, which very much limit the amount of um, reality we can take in. So um, I'd say that was that was my initial um, <clears throat> motivation for becoming interested in um, in the unusual or what we call the paranormal. I'm really not sure how okay. normal or abnormal it is because we can't talk about it. But <laughs> um, anyway, <clears throat> as I um, got into my uh, early adolescence, I became very intrigued with things like the UFO phenomenon, and um, especially intrigued in how our society handled these questions, um, which, um, of course, many of us are, are curious about these things, but um, there's this atmosphere of official denial. 
that we all have to sort of work through if we really want to um, understand these things. Uh, sure. So um, I sort of became, um, you might say, uh, polarized toward, toward an interest in these things. I would say that my interest in the afterlife, per se, uh, came about um, around the mid-1990s when I was, in, was uh, introduced to the field of instrumental transcommunication uh, by Mark Macy, who was a researcher in that field. He had just written a book uh, <clears throat> about this sort of thing. This is communication from the afterlife through electronics. And at first I was actually kind of skeptical, uh, but when I uh, became more familiar with it and uh, met some of the people involved in the practice, uh, I became quite interested in it and quite convinced that this was a, a uh, legitimate uh, vehicle for communication with the other side. Um, so that's that's in a nutshell. So a couple questions, um, you know, uh, triggered uh, from uh, what you just said. Uh, the precognition uh, in in your early life. I remember uh, having a dream about my aunt passing away, then woke up to mm -hmm. find out she had. Uh, are you talking mm -hmm. about something like that, that sort of thing? Um, not not necessarily that sort of thing, but just little things that would show up in a dream that were that I happened to remember when I woke up, and that then in one way or another took place in the following day or several days. Um, and what you say about uh, becoming aware of uh, a relative's passing uh, is actually quite common, and and this is why I um, actually the, the longest chapter in my book is about language and and how. We um, how we use language unconsciously and how we let it uh, very often uh, determine our take on reality. Um, and labeling something paranormal, for example, uh, and uh, making it taboo in the culture means we have no idea how paranormal something is. It may be perfectly normal. I've, sp I've spoken right. to dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have had exactly your experience. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, yeah, like you said, it becomes taboo in the culture. So then, you know, we don't want to talk about it because it makes us. We feel like it mm -hmm. makes us look foolish, um, and so it doesn't end up getting researched, and it ends up getting dumped into the pseudoscience um, trash right. can. And um, you know, and, and we don't do legitimate, um, fun, you know, well-funded research into it, and that's, I think, the crime about a lot of uh, pseudo uh, sciences mm -hmm. out there, you know. Um, but you talk well, about the did... modern electronics. Go ahead. No, I was going to ask you about, you know, at, when when you have this experience, um, did you tell friends about it, relatives? Uh, what was your experience of dealing with that? Well, um, I uh, I immediately told my husband, and uh, but you know he was the type of person you know that uh, you know he saw ghosts and uh, oh. you know he didn't think that sort of thing was weird, um, and uh, I believe I if I recall I mean uh, it's been a, it's been quite a while now uh, probably back in the nineties actually um, I do recall that when I heard she passed. 
uh, I told her daughter <clears throat> that I dreamed about it. And uh, mm-hmm. her daughter said that her son, which would have been my aunt's grandchild, uh, woke up and said something to her, too, about, you know, mm-hmm. grandma, you know, something. I, I don't remember what he said now, but uh, it was, it, you know, the inference was that uh, the child also had gotten some message uh, which you're calling language, you know, and, um, you know, that makes sense. Um, but, uh, you know, about the modern electronics, are we talking about the, you know, these gadgets that we see on these paranormal TV shows where they tell us uh, a spirit has responded? Um, because, you know, those, I never hear what they say they hear you know it almost feels uh-huh. like they're telling right. you what they they want you to hear you know they're they're planting the suggestion but to me it always sounds like a garbled nothing um <laughs> right. it, are you talking about better stuff than that yes yes in fact in in the documentary that i produced called calling earth um <clears throat> i don't feature that sort of work at all the, the gadgets you're speaking of generally <clears throat> provide, um, uh, you, you might say, some raw material in the form of uh, chopped up speech. Uh, some people call it gibberish. And <clears throat> the idea is that uh, those on the other side can somehow manipulate that into, um, you know, into an audible voice, into a comprehensible language. And <clears throat> that does happen sometimes, but... I think the the potential for false positives there is is as, as you have just expressed um, uh, it, it, it overrides um, any uh, any strong evidence or strong evidentiality. In my film, I feature mostly some of the earlier work. Uh, this began actually in 1950s when um, tape recorders first became consumer items. And um, occasionally people would uh, hear on their tapes uh, voices that didn't belong there. Uh, In the United States, these were generally dismissed as, well, well, maybe the machine is picking up a radio station, which is something that did happen or could happen if you had a very powerful radio station nearby. Sometimes the the electronics in in early tape recorders would would pick up some of those broadcasts for for moments, perhaps. But... In Europe, uh, this phenomenon was taken much more seriously. Uh, it began with a, a gentleman by the name of Friedrich Jurgensen back in the 1950s. He was a very well-known um, <clears throat> documentary producer and uh, uh, actor and was actually even also an opera singer in Sweden at the time. So he was pretty well-known. He was no obscure figure. He was out one night with his new, <clears throat> excuse me, his new tape recorder, uh, recording nocturnal bird sounds for a documentary he was producing. And uh, when he played back the tape, in the, in the gaps between the sounds, he heard faint voices discussing nocturnal bird sounds. <laughs> he thought this was quite a coincidence uh, and thought no more about it until very shortly thereafter he heard the voice on one of his tapes, he heard the voice of his deceased mother calling him by his childhood nickname, Friedel. Now, this got his attention. And he realized that yeah. something else was going, that was going on here. 
And so he proceeded to experiment. Uh, he would simply <clears throat> roll the tape. He would ask a question, uh, leave a pause on the tape, ask another question, and so forth. And when he played back his tapes, he would hear faint but appropriate answers on the tapes to his, to his uh, questions. He was then joined by a Latvian researcher by the name of Konstantin Raudeva, who worked with Jurgensen for a time, and then went on to do his own experiments in this so-called electronic voice phenomenon. By the time Raudeva died in 1974, he had recorded between 60 and 70,000 examples of, of this phenomenon. And he actually published, um, he published a book and also a phonograph record uh, that reproduced uh, quite a number of these uh, really fascinating um, conversations, really, with, with those on the other side. So, and then wow. after Radovi himself passed, he showed up in the work of his colleagues, that his, his voices and his images would, would show up. Um, now, when I say images, um, very often uh, experimenters who, who were working, say, with, with television sets would receive... Um, images on, on the TV screens from the other side. Uh, this, this was, you, you can see some of the, uh, uh, some of the examples of this in my film. Uh, some of them are quite striking. Uh, the uh, Karl Schreiber, a, a German uh, fellow who was experimenting with EVP, uh, <clears throat> was advised by someone on the other side to try working with video. Now, he knew nothing about video. He was, he was trained as a, a saddlesmith. He was hardly a technical person. But he, he followed the instructions. Um, he then worked with an electronic engineer to set up a system uh, whereby images of many of his deceased relatives uh, showed up on TV screens, which he then re-photographed on videotape. You can see some of these in my film. Um, and the, and this, this work was quite impressive. Um, especially considering that Schreiber was, was totally naive when he went into this. Uh, so oh. that, these are just, just little bits and pieces of, of the kinds of evidence that have impressed me and, and motivated yeah. me to do, do these um, documentaries and also then to write my book. Well, I can see why. I mean, um, the hokey stuff that we see on TV and, you know, and, and in, I don't know, in my opinion, I have yet to see a show that convinced me of anything they were seeing and telling me what they were seeing was actually um, something paranormal necessarily. And sometimes I think right. it's all staged. Um, and I don't know, you know, my husband is of the opinion, and I wonder what you think about this. He is of the opinion that the other side where ghosts, you know, I'm calling them ghosts very loosely, you know, I'm using air yeah. quotes here, um, sure. you know, where they reside, you know, it isn't just in, say, what we might deem a haunted house or a haunted hospital. You know, he believes that ghosts are everywhere, so you don't have to be in, a, hmm. in what we call a haunted location because they're just milling around and um, so I wonder what you think about that and, and you know what, what do you think the veil is that separates uh, this world from the next okay well here's, here's where, where language comes in again um, the, mo most of the um, psychics and, and people working in this field that I know of make, it, make a, uh, a distinction here um, in, from from my point of view and in, in my work, uh, 
I would refer to ghosts as individuals who have not completely passed over to the other side for for whatever okay. um, reasons of of psychological or emotional baggage they carried when they passed over, uh, they remain attached in some sense to their physical being. And and this manifests in a form that that we on our on our side, on the physical side of things, can actually see and hear at times. Um you know, poltergeists, for example, can interact with it with you know, the physical universe and do little mischievous things to get attention and so on. Um, so I would think of this as, as an, uh, an entity or a being or a person, if you will, um, who hasn't passed over completely. I had a friend, who was a very brilliant sort of guy, who was um, interested in the paranormal, but he was basically, his orientation was basically materialistic. And he, um, after he died, I mean, he'd, had, he'd arranged this before he died, uh, to have his body frozen. Are you familiar with this um, uh, cryogenic procedure where uh, the body is frozen and the idea, and sometimes some people just have their heads frozen or their brains frozen, and the idea is that someday science will come up with a way to defrost them and reanimate them. So uh, this friend of mine actually did have his body frozen uh, after he passed at great expense, I might add. And... um, uh, a medium whom I work with, um, at, one, at one point I was just on the phone with her and asked her if she could tune in to this friend of mine. And what she found was that he was, his his spirit, or his ghost, was hanging around the cryopreservation facility located in Arizona. <clears throat> and that he was fixated on his body. Because he still believed in that sort of quasi afterlife because he hadn't fully made the transition that 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 body was him and that it could be reanimated someday and so she uh, got into a conversation with him and convinced him that he could he could be a lot happier if he let go of his body and got on with the rest of his afterlife and so he, he did manage to do that to pry himself free of that obsession with his body and that he passed over fully and was able to communicate back to me actually through this medium uh, with an expression of gratitude for helping him get unstuck. So um, that, that, that's, that's somewhat how I see what we call, what we tend to call ghosts as, as folks right. who haven't made the transition. Now, the transition to what? The transition to where? What, what does that mean? What does the other side mean? And, what, and as you've asked, what is the veil? Well, from from my point of view, the veil is simply our senses, our physical senses, <clears throat> because our our senses are really tuned into a very very narrow slice of the world. You know, our eyes can only see in a certain spectrum. We can't see infrared, ultraviolet, radio waves, and so on and so on, higher frequencies. Uh, it's a very very narrow band of of awareness that we have through our eyes. Similarly, similarly, through our other senses, they are fine-tuned to connect us with the physical world, and they do a pretty good job of that. Um, but uh, that's that's it. That's their limitation. Now, one of the benefits of Western science has been to 
demonstrate that our senses only see a tiny fraction of what's here or what's out there. Um, you know, we, we can create instruments that are sensitive to these other um, um, spectrum, spectrums, spectra of energy, and, um, and that these do exist in spite of the fact that we can't see them, touch them, feel them, hear them, and so on. Um, we know that our pets live in a different world, essentially, than we do. Dogs live in a world of smell, so on. Um, that's you know, obvious to any pet owner. So um, I think we need to be a bit skeptical of our own take on, on reality because of this limitation of, or this narrow band of, of sensory input that we have. Now, it seems to me that people who have uh, psychic talent, which, which may be all of us to some degree, um, are simply able to um, to stimulate other, um, I don't know whether to call it another sensory apparatus, but, but to exercise and fine-tune abilities we may already have in our consciousness to receive uh, information from other frequencies, if you will. And, hmm. um, well, they that, say that's we only use ten percent of our brain, right? Uh, they right. say we're and, only using ten percent of our brain. <laughs> right. Well, that that may be true. Um, I haven't researched that myself, but my question is: Is it the brain that's doing the receiving? Okay. Is is well, the, the the our self who's sitting here listening to this broadcast or participating in it? You know, where where is our where is our consciousness really? Is our consciousness sitting in our brains? Well, our consciousness is certainly focusing on the information that's being processed through our brains. But where is our consciousness itself? Uh, it's from from everything I can gather from all of this research, our consciousness is on the other side. We're, we're hmm. just looking through these. We're just looking through these eyes, and uh, it, it's it's it appears at this point in our research that um, to decode the illusion of of physicality, if you will, uh, requires um, being being able to use our imaginations to unimagine. A, a kind of a program that we've been stuck in. Hmm. And that program is to believe that we are either our bodies or our brains. Is that really true? Or is that an illusion? And that, that's, that's a question that, that I find fascinating. And that seems to be answered uh, by the, the very existence of afterlife communication. Sorry, I think you were going to ask something there. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what you just told me. So so I think, let me say back to you what I think you said, using my words, mm. and tell me if I understood you. So it's like our consciousness is separate from our physical body, and it's out there somewhere just sort of controlling this meat suit of ours, <laughs> and it doesn't actually live in our physical body. So maybe when this body dies, wherever it is that, you know, wherever that consciousness lives, it just moves on to the next life or whatever. Um, yeah, I think that that's a good, a good uh, sort of nutshell summary of it, that um, 
you know, we, in, in my book, for example, I ask, you know, what is the afterlife made of? Basically, and I don't, by the way, I don't like the word afterlife. I think it's it's very restrictive. It's, it's understandable in terms of of um, our belief that consciousness somehow is created by the body and then, well, maybe it continues after we die. But it, it excludes, the more we say afterlife, 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 um, the less we can imagine consciousness pre-existing the body. And, when I and, get in, and, in the book, and living I, on after the body, and living on after the right. body then, right. Right, right. But, Time, time as we conceive it in our bodies, when we're when we're in our bodies, doesn't really exist in, in that linear sense, in in what I call the greater reality. And that, that's a, a term I much prefer to afterlife. It's much less, I think, restrictive. Um, so if if and if in fact the so-called afterlife is made of consciousness, then our particular self. Uh, you might say is a, an eternal participant in that in that greater reality, and that we can choose um, depending on our uh, trajectory of our soul, if you will, um, <clears throat> to incarnate or not. Uh, and we have many options in terms of when and where to incarnate. Um, you know, in thinking in terms of, of time and space, as we do, and uh, that that. Um, our, our our very picture of reality as being bound by time and space is itself a, a kind of a special case. It, it's not how the greater reality really works. So right. I think um, one of the reasons that I'm very much looking forward to my next adventure after I pass out of this body is um, I'm curious about the the options available in consciousness. That we're not we're not normally privy to here. We can I think we can taste them in dreams. I think dreams are particularly I think lucid dreaming. Are, are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. I just wonder if it's really dreaming or if it's just our imagination, almost like wish fulfillment. You know, we're just um, mm -hmm. imagining a scenario as opposed to really experiencing the same type of thing we would get in a dream. Um, can you rephrase that question? Well, lucid dreaming, and, if, if, and I may not fully understand it, but my understanding of it makes me skeptical that it's actually dreaming. Um, oh, I'm see. thinking that it's, you know, we're really just having... Um, you know, uh, taking a ride in our own imagination as mm -hmm. opposed to a real dream. You know, it's almost like we're we're calling it lucid dreaming, but we're, you know, we're just having fun imagining something we might, you know, I don't know, maybe a trip to Egypt right. or something, you know. Right, right. Where, where do you, but where do you draw the line? Between well, I don't... Well, between, between dreaming and imagination, first of all. Well, I would think that the lucid dreaming, you're more conscious to be directing it, where right. with the dream, I'm thinking it's your subconscious at work, and you don't know where it's going to go. Right. You're more of just right. a, you know, you're witnessing it rather than directing it. Right, right. Okay, yes, good. I think we're on the same page there. 
So um, one of the things I'm beginning to suspect is that the lucid dream, in a very general and loose sense, but the lucid dream is like the kindergarten of the afterlife. That it's an opportunity to understand the relationship between ourselves and our consciousness and what we take to be reality. Uh, in the afterlife, as I understand it, uh, from a number of sources, um, we do consciously create, or we, do, we can consciously create and participate in individual and collective reality. You might, you might call them reality bubbles. Uh, because okay. the afterlife is itself made of consciousness, we have a direct one-to-one relationship with what we perceive and what we create. Now, this is very, it's very difficult to put this into language because we don't normally have these experiences in our waking life. Um, and and our, our languages are designed basically to serve us in, in, the, in the ordinary world. So it's, it's kind of a struggle to describe what's beyond the ordinary world in ordinary language. So mm-hmm. I think we're just sort of, do, we're sort of doing the best we can with what we've got. Uh, in terms of, of language. Um, but the, the actual experience, well, the actual experience of anything, even in our own world, goes beyond language. You can, you can have a wonderful experience or a terrible experience, and you can express it, you can describe it to someone, but that's not the same thing as experiencing it. Right. So, you know, we're, we're, well, we're kind of stuck in... Go ahead, please. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, that, that's you know most most definitely the case. I mean, I'm I'm already getting from you in just these few minutes that uh, we have to um, redefine things. Uh, we have to expand how we think about um, what our perception of all of this has been to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do need, and and we do need a new language. Um, well, I, I do want to ask you about some of those, um, uh, you know, some of those snippets that you described of, of proof that, uh, you know, where you were talking to people on the other side. Um, were any of these situations where a conversation was actually had, or are you getting random words and phrases? Because if you had a conversation, I'm wondering what, you know what you've learned about the afterlife, especially is is there a God? <laughs> well, um, I would I would in, in the spirit again of the longest chapter in my book, which is called "Don't Eat the Menu," <laughs> about language. Uh, I would ask you, what do you mean by God? I, mean, I, well, I can't I answer. God I can't answer is... your question. Yeah. I can't uh, answer maybe your question that was a rhetorical so... question. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I was saying I can't answer your question unless you tell me what you think God is. Okay, so so I'm thinking, you know, if you're a Christian, then you think you're going to see Jesus. If, you know, if you're uh, maybe someone from uh, Egypt or a pagan, maybe you're going to see ISIS. Um, I mean, has anyone spoken about um, seeing God. I mean, there's some people that think, well, you know, it's it's really you just return to the cosmic web out there, and it's mm-hmm. just a feeling of of divine love. You know, you don't see right. anyone. 
you know. And I guess I just wonder what sort of, um, you know, feedback have you gotten about what's over there? Well, I, I actually, it's, it's, thank, you for, thank you for asking that question, because I, in my conversations with folks on the other side, mainly some, uh, a couple of mediums whom I, whom I trust uh, and have had a lot of experience with, it's a question I haven't asked because I think I already have my own definition of God that works for me. And in, in, in my book, basically, I express that um, uh, God is, again, well, let, let, me, let me go back a step. And this is in my chapter on language. It's a section on God. And in the, the, the picture that I'm constructing in this, in this book is one of, of seeing consciousness with a capital C, consciousness at large in the greater reality, as, as um, analogous to an infinite ocean. And that the, what we call a soul would be analogous to, say, a surfer's wave in that ocean. And this, question, this gets into the question of separation versus distinction. You know, is the wave separate from the ocean or is it merely distinct from the ocean? It's made of the same stuff, but it has its own unique form. But it's not disconnected from its source. Now, this is, and this is one particular model of looking at the question of, of God, which is almost by definition uh, some sort of a supreme and if you can think of an infinite ocean, then you, you can call that God if you want. Um, then the soul uh, is a modulation or a variation in that, in that substance of God, you might say. Um, and whether, however, however we conceive or of or picture the absolute, it is what it is regardless of our picturing, but it is an absolute. And, and we are... Uh, as, as, quote, individuals, not separate from that. Our consciousness is not separate from consciousness as a whole. It's distinct from it. Um, and it's, you know, we, 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 we feel we have some sense of individuality or even separateness. Um, and that's, you know, that's purposeful. But it's, it's, not, it's not the big truth. It's not, it's not you know, when, when you when you uh, get behind the, the, the facade of things, the surface of things, I think you find that we are all participants in this, in this one great uh, sea or ocean of, of consciousness. And um, that, that, that our, our apparent separation or our distinction uh, is, seems to be for the purpose of having particular experiences uh, that we cannot have um, other than with a measure of individuality. Now, as far as well, my, 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 go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say, you know, I've heard, uh, I've heard it said that, you know, we are um, emanations of the divine here, trying to have mm -hmm. a human experience, and right. um, it sounds like maybe you're saying something like that. And I think you just said in a long, you know, long about way that no one, uh, none of these people. Uh, that you've spoken to in the afterlife have seen Jesus or uh, Guadalupe or whoever. <laughs> they haven't ah. reported back seeing them. Right. Well, there there are a number of near-death experiencers um, that I've spoken with 
who have seen religious figures. And okay. um, my, my understanding of this is that when someone passes over, particularly if they pass over unexpectedly, um, that they will um, either project uh, a, a vision of their preferred deity or deity's representative, if you will, uh, or uh, guides on the other side will sort of benevolently masquerade as these respected individuals in order to comfort the person who may have you may have had a traumatic traumatic experience, a traumatic separation from their body. So mm-hmm. it's very hard it's very hard for us to to nail this down to anything concrete. You know, when we say someone sees Jesus, well, obviously if they do, they're not seeing Jesus' physical body in the afterlife. They're seeing an image. And, um, you know, again, this image may be purposeful. Whether it's actually who they think it is, um, I'm not in a position to say. And all I can say is that it has been useful to them to have had that experience. Now, when they, when they come back, in the case of near-death experiences, if they come back and they say, well, I saw Jesus and that was that, well, that was their experience. Uh, I'm not going to argue with them. Right, um, right. And, no, I get it. Right? I get it. I think yeah. we see what we expect to see, quite honestly. Um, it's like when someone sees an apparition. Um, I mean, there was an example, for instance, in Zetan, uh, Egypt, in the 60s, they actually have videotape uh, of what people were calling an apparition of a lady. Mm-hmm. And if you were, you know, if you were Muslim, you saw Fatima. If you were pagan, you saw Isis. If you were Christian, you saw Mary, right. you know. Right. Um, so I think it's kind of, um, you know, kind of the same thing. Um, Daniel, i got to take a quick break here, uh, and, but I want to get back to this. This is really intriguing, and I'm really late doing this. So uh, let, let me do this, and we'll come back and, uh, and finish our conversation. So uh, we need to have a word uh, from uh, Joe Carson. Hello. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Hello, 
This is Karen Tate, and uh, if you're tuning in a little bit late, I've been chatting with uh, Daniel Drazen about uh, his new book, uh, A New Science of the Afterlife, and uh, we've been having quite the intriguing conversation here, I think, uh, and uh, right at the perfect time of year. I mean, we're in the season of Samhain, Halloween, uh, when the veil between the worlds is supposed to be thinnest. Um, Do you believe that, Daniel, that there's a time of the year? that uh, the veil is thinner? Um, it's a good question, and I, my answer is I don't know because I haven't researched it. I try, okay, not, to, I try not to speak, speak beyond my expertise. But I will say that we, we, don't, we don't really understand uh, the subtle influences of, of the cosmos and, and how that interacts with the, the greater reality of consciousness. I think astrology, for example, points to that. I'm not an astrologer. I haven't, I'm certainly not a student of astrology. But the fact of it does suggest that um, we're, we're really only barely aware of all the factors that, that tie us together uh, with consciousness, with the, the, uh, the nature of the cosmos, as, even as we normally understand it, let alone the greater reality. So I think there, there are many, many mysteries here that, that um, uh, uh, beg, beg for, for honest research. Well, yeah, and you can, and you <clears throat> piggyback on that and say how many of us, because I know I grew up a Catholic, um, I, I'm not anymore, but, um, I, you know, I feel like I outgrew it, you know, it was born into it, as so many of us are born into a faith of our family. Right. Um, but, you know, we're, you know, we're fed this story, this vision, whatever you want to call it, of heaven. And God, and you know, and if we suffer and sacrifice enough, like Jesus did, you know, dying on the cross, well, you know, we'll be rewarded by sitting at His right hand, and you know, or we're going to be raptured up, or you know, all the mm-hmm. different stories they tell us. And you even have some people in some spiritualities who think psychology uh, is, um, you know, dangerous. Um, you know, they don't like, uh, you know, therapy. Uh, they even say yoga and meditation is um, dangerous because, it, you know, you're, you're creating an opening for the devil. So, you know, if we're mm-hmm. dealing with this sort of archaic thinking, too, it really makes it hard, I think, for us to evolve and advance and give some of these answers that so many of us would just love to, to have. Right. Oh, I I agree absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, m- much of what we attribute to, um, <laughs> to 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 God and the angels is of our own making, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, for for whatever reasons, we don't need to get into all that. But um, I, I think it's you know, th- there's no end to this stuff, and I think it's important to, if if even if we can't see through it, at least to question it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when I was when well, I was a kid, the, my my what 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 kind of turned the lights on for me was when I was very young. My father said, "You know, there's more than one religion," mm-hmm. and 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 the heavens opened for me at that moment. <laughs> I realized that that you know no one had the the definitive answer, right? And and that and that. Um, 
to a great extent, uh, reality, or the definition of reality, is more in line with the question of our own experience than anything yeah. universal and objective. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and people people adhere to all kinds of beliefs for all kinds of reasons. And they yeah. just do what they do. You know, we all do. We have, You and I have our beliefs that that are, you know, perhaps unconscious, that uh, that we're not normally aware of and that, and that guide our lives from day to day. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you about your documentary, uh, Skoll, The Afterlife Experience. What is Skoll, S-C-O-L-E? Skoll is the name of a, a town in England, a very small town. It's uh, located about a half hour northeast of Cambridge uh, in the county of Norfolk. And it was the location of an experiment that was done in the late 1990s um, by two couples. Um, the the uh, two of the one of the couples uh, were both um, very accomplished mental mediums, and the other couple, Sandra and Robin Foy, had been lifelong experimenters in this field of, of physical mediumship. So the two couples got together. They sat in sessions for uh, for a period of five years, 500 sessions and worked with a um, what they call their spirit team, a group of entities on the other side who, who worked with them to create uh, experiments that would yield uh, physical evidence, evidence that would appear on our side uh, that could then be preserved, recorded, analyzed, and so forth. And they, uh, they received a huge amount of, of, um, of physical evidence, uh, a lot of manifestation of communication with the other side, uh, connection with folks um, folks over there who could project their voices directly into the room, bypassing the mediums. Um, they had uh, photographic experiments where images were produced on 35 millimeter film. They were quite amazing. Uh, they had um, they did experimented with a video uh, videotape camera uh, that yielded uh, an amazing variety of of uh, uh, visual effects, patterns, uh, pictures, uh, animated faces, and so on. And um, this experiment was monitored for um, for two of its five years by a team of investigators from uh, the British uh, Society for Psychical Research. And these guys were were plenty skeptical. I mean, they'd seen it all, but they could find absolutely no fault. <coughs> excuse me, absolutely no fault with the work of these people. In, in one of their sessions, they were communicating with a deceased British medium who, during the Second World War, um, was, was accused of witchcraft because she somehow picked up on something that turned out to be a military secret. And she was jailed for this. And uh, even Winston Churchill at the time supported her, but it was, it was to no avail. She spent um, many of her last years in prison. So... Um, the, the Skull team were, were communicating with her, and um, she then manifested in their room a newspaper on the front page of which was an article about her. Now, this newspaper had been printed in 1944 or 1945, and yet it was in pristine condition when they received it in the late 1990s. Now, when my co-producer Tim Coleman and I visited the Skull folks, um, in, the, in the early 2000s, uh, they showed us this uh, this newspaper, and it, I held it in my hand. It was quite incredible. It was printed in in 1944, 
and yet the the inside page, the, the outer pages had begun to yellow because it was already five years since the, the newspaper was received. But um, it was the inner pages were pure white, as if the paper had just come off the press. Uh, now this this is very hard evidence. The uh, SPR investigators sent this paper to the uh, um, Paper Industry Research Association and it was analyzed. And um, they, they reported back that this was, in fact, newsprint uh, of the era, which was chemically unique to that time, to the wartime. So this was very, very strong, hard evidence of, of uh, paranormality wow. here. Wow. And did anybody check with the newspaper to just double-check that that was actually in the archives? Um, I don't know. I can't answer that. Yeah. But we, wow. but we you do know, know the that the physical paper that the phys, that the physical paper was 1940s paper. Right, right. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, the stuff that yeah. you're talking about, Daniel. God, I would love to see um, you know a, a film made out of it. Uh, but we have your documentary. Um, and, you know, maybe that's even more believable than a film. People would say, you know, well, the film, they just, you know, recreated these things for, you know, movie magic. Um, is is your documentary available to, to see? Yes, yes. Um, the easiest way to, um, to get to them is to go to my website, which is dandrazen.com. That's D-A-N-D-R-A-S-I-N. Dot com, dandrazen.com, and then um, when you get to the home page, click on New Science. That will take you to my book, and then if you scroll down below the book, you will see links to my two documentaries. Uh, these are documentaries I co-produced with my friend Tim, Tim Coleman uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, the one, as you've, as you've seen, is called Skoll, the Afterlife Experiment. And the other one, which is about uh, electronic communication with the other side, is called Calling Earth. Um, okay. You can, actually, you, can, you can see a preview of Calling Earth um, on Vimeo, and uh, this is a, an abbreviated link that you can give your listeners. It's bit.ly slash callearth-preview. bit.ly slash callers, one word, dash, preview. And that will take you to a five-minute preview of Calling Earth. And then if you just stay on, uh, the the full film will, will follow that. Wow. This is incredible and, stuff. I mean, I, I used to follow this stuff pretty regularly, and then I got bored with it because, you know, you weren't really seeing anything new, and it just seemed like the stuff you saw on, you know, mm -hmm. paranormal reality TV. Uh, but if I had seen some of the stuff you're describing, that would have made a real difference to me. Well, thank you. Um, my co-producer Tim and I did our best to collect uh, some of the best hard evidence we could find. Um, I mean, we... we recorded a lot more footage than you'll see in the film, but we picked what we hope are the best examples of these things, the most highly yeah. evidential examples. So what do you think is the biggest surprise of all uh, of everything you've gathered? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know that I would call it a surprise because it's sort of an awareness that, that um, has developed over the years since I began investigating these things. 
Um, I think it's, it's just a sense, a sense that what we believe our lives to be is, first of all, not the whole picture, but that, that it, they're, they're very different from the, the, the reality we live in, the reality we live, uh, is very different from what we believe it to be. And um, rather than, than sort of lay down some conclusion, I would say that each individual has to discover this for themselves. And, um, and, and we each do it our own way. We're each attracted to different things, different clues, different events. Uh, but I think the important thing is to, um, to follow the threads where they lead, to, to see what feels yeah. right to us. In, in, in the way of, of understanding more about about reality, and, and you know, it did, while while I'm while I'm on the subject of reality, um, I think uh, we limit reality by by defining that word too narrowly. And in in my chapter on on language, um, I explore what reality is not, which a lot of it is just our human projection. Um, but I was compelled to arrive at, at, at this definition of reality, that reality is anything that can give rise to consequences. Hmm. Let's think about, think about that, that for a moment. Say that again. Real, Say reality, again. Is, okay. reality is whatever can give rise to consequences. Okay. And that means that... Um, whether it's physical or mental or imaginary or speculative, it's all part of reality. Hmm. Good point. That's really expanding and, and, it um, right. exponentially. Right. I hope so. And that that leaves that leaves room for exploration, for contemplation, for um, sitting in silence. Or exploring the world in an active way. Nothing is excluded. Right. And, well, I know and, you're and when busy. We say nothing uh, is, when we say nothing is excluded, that gets us into the realm, if we picture it this way, of what we call God, which is the whole thing, the whole of reality. The, the parts we know, the parts we don't know, the parts we've never explored, life on other planets, life beyond, the, beyond time as we know time. Oh, darn. Um, Daniel accidentally just disconnected himself. Um, well, um, I don't know if he's going to call back or not, but um, let me go ahead and give his, uh, his website again. Uh, that might give him a chance to call back in. We were just getting ready to wrap up anyway. Um, so his, uh, his website, oh, there he is. Hold on. Uh, okay. Hey, Hello? I'm glad you called back. Yeah, I'm glad you called back. Um, I was stalling <laughs> for you. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Where, well, where, you, you were fi finish your statement. Okay. Well, all, all I think the the in a nutshell, what I'm saying is that whatever we think reality is, it's greater than that. And and to yeah. have that that and, sort of that sort of healthy skepticism about our own conclusions about reality. 
Well, and, and I think it does take some courage to do this kind of investigation because you may discover things uh, that surprise you. You know, you can't, you know, for people mm-hmm. who like to live in a little box, um, this might not be somewhere they want to go, you know, uh, because, sure. yeah. uh, you know, they, they, they have their, their boundaries uh, for their sense of uh, safety or security or whatever. But um, right. uh, I don't know. And, I like and, and, to challenge those boundaries. Right. That's healthy to challenge them. And I think, you know, we too have those boundaries. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we, we – not all of us can can um, transcend those boundaries, and so I think you know we also have to respect everyone's you know individual inclinations and limitations and so forth. So uh, again, I'm I, I'm not trying to start a new religion here, <laughs> but basically to to op- open some windows, as it were, and ask some questions. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I don't know. I think that's one of the most uh, important things in life is uh, asking the questions, knowing the questions to ask. Um, well, Daniel, um, I know when you write a book, uh, you've got to spend an awful lot of time promoting it. So I don't know if you're uh, able to work on other projects beyond, um, you know, getting that book out there. And, again, the title is A New Science of the Afterlife. But uh, what do you have on the back burner? What's your next project? Well, I've been working on a screenplay for some years, actually. It's been on the shelf a lot. But it's, it's, I've now taken it off the shelf and dusted it off, and um, it's uh, it's a labor of love that's actually gone on for some years, and I think it's about two thirds completed. So uh, that'll be my next project. Watch. watch Is this, this topic part of it, or totally unrelated? Um, it's a, a very different angle on the same thing. Ultimately, it's all I'll Got say. It. But I'm having fun with it. Okay. And would you recommend any other resources besides your own book and your uh, documentaries? Let's see. Um, well, in in the back of my book is a long list of recommended reading. And um, um, I, I would just suggest that people um, get my book. Uh, it's, a, it's a slim volume. You, you can read it in two long evenings, I think. And um, and I, in, in the text of the book, there are some other books that I recommend. And then there's this discussion on recommended reading, which I think uh, people will enjoy. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, Daniel, it's been great uh, having you on the show. Uh, it's been very intriguing. And uh, I'm going to go to your website, uh, Daniel Drazen, New Science, and uh, look at those uh, clips of those documentaries. You've hooked me. Okay, thanks. Again, it's dandreason.com. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks, Karen. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Uh, well, and before you go, listeners, I wanted to just tell you about uh, that Dancing with Gaia um, uh, video you were listening to. Uh, the DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini book, which goes even deeper into the material uh, that was in the audio. And you can buy the DVD and booklet for only $9.95 at dancingwithgaia.com. Now, I have a copy. Uh, I, the, uh, Joe Carson was kind enough to uh, gift me with one. And uh, I would just say, with the holidays upon us, um, it would not 
not be uh, a shabby gift by any stretch of the imagination uh, to invest only $9.95 and uh, give your friends or loved ones a really great quality uh, gift. Uh, so think about that. Uh, Dancing with Gaia uh, DVD and booklet $9.95 and uh, you can get it at the website dancingwithgaia.com. Uh, well, that about does it for me, uh, listeners. Um, I uh, hope you're having a nice Samhain. And, um, you know, and for those of us who believe this is the uh, end of the year and we start a new one, uh, you know, in, in the coming days, uh, Happy New Year. <laughs> so that about does it for me. I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, I'll be back with you uh, next Wednesday. Uh, and here's our uh, weekly homage to Sekhmet, lion-headed Egyptian goddess, uh, the mistress and friend of women everywhere, teaching them to have healthy boundaries, uh, to say no without guilt, uh, to step into their strength, their courage, their power. Hail Sekhmet.